welcome everyone. Great to see so many people here that have an interest in journalism. I'm Louisa Graham, Chief Executive of the Walkley Foundation. I'd like to start by acknowledging that we're all on Aboriginal land and pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and their elders, past and present. We were approached by Melbourne University Press to host this event to launch journalist Catherine Murphy's new book on disruption. Thank you also to UTS and the Centre for Media Transition for participating in this evening's discussion. As an industry, we've all been grappling with the challenges and questions that Catherine has explored in her book in both a very personal and a big picture way. So this is a very timely discussion for the industry. And if, like us, you're glued to the documentary, The Fourth Estate, about the inner workings of the New York Times and its journalists during the Trump era, you will know that the critical issues facing journalism are many and varied. At the Walkleys, we've been taking stock of the last 10 years of our service to the industry, looking at our awards, programs and outreach. And now we want to ensure that the Australian media is viable, solid and sustained. And we're working towards that by developing initiatives to assist in building trust in journalism. And that work has never felt more urgent. Over the coming months, we'll be taking stock with the industry, talking about these challenges and how we can meet them together. The Walkley Foundation is at the heart of the Australian media. Now, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Catherine's wonderful writing for The Guardian Australia, particularly on government and politics. The Parliamentary Press Gallery is something we can't take for granted, and it's really quite unique around the world to have journalists housed within the seat of government, like we do here in Australia. And I think it speaks volumes about the importance of quality journalism to our national life, something worth protecting and something worth fighting for. We need journalists like Catherine keeping the bastards honest and reflecting on politics and society. That kind of work takes time and resources, as I'm sure Catherine will talk about tonight. And make sure you grab your copy of Catherine's book. Now to introduce our guests. Catherine Murphy, Guardian Australian's political editor. She has worked in Canberra's Parliamentary Gallery for 15 years. And in 2008, she won the Paul Lynham Award for Excellence in Press Gallery Journalism. In 2012, she was a Walkley Award finalist in Best Digital Journalism category. Peter Frey is a professor for journalism practice at UTS. He has been a former editor and editor-in-chief of a, a great variety of publications, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Sun Herald, the Canberra Times and the Sunday Age. And Peter has lived the reality of the digital revolution that's forever changed the way journalism is practised, received and distributed. So please welcome our guests this evening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to UCS, and especially welcome to the Centre for Media Transition. So let's talk about this book. So it's uh, a partly an essay. Well, it is an essay, but it's a memoir. It's a confession, and in a way, it's a call to arms. And even though it's a, it looks like a slender book, it actually packs quite a powerful punch, I'd say. So the very simple question first is, did you enjoy writing it? I really did. I really enjoyed it. Why? Uh, well, largely because... I had the central ideas and themes of this book in my head for quite a number of years and it had been sort of doing the rounds of my head and it's always better when something's doing the rounds of your head to try and get it out of your head and possibly onto the page. So it, it wasn't stressful in the sense that I knew broadly what I wanted to say uh, with the essay and, and how I wanted to basically the con convey the message to all of you that uh, even though... 
Pete rightly says, this is a memoir and it's a, it's a personal account of what's occurred uh, in journalism over this really quite tumultuous decade. Uh, my purpose really wasn't writing a memoir about my own career. My purpose was engaging news consumers about uh, how I believe very passionately that my disruption, what I've lived through, is yours and society's disruption. So it was sort of, I suppose it's, you know, to grab that feminist mm. kind of concept, it's making the personal political. Indeed, and, and it, it is, and we will get to a lot of the themes that run through this book. I want to, I'm not going to turn this interview in a kind of a chronology of the book, but I do want to start at the beginning. So uh, if you haven't read the book, uh, the first image that you will have to grapple with is the image of Catherine turning up for work at the Financial Review in 1996 in a sports craft suit. Just hold that thought. Because <laughs> so, what I'm interested in is that year is this very seminal year in both politics and journalism. In, in many ways, it's the start of the beginning of the end of the print era of journalism. Not that we particularly knew it at that point, but that is really where you can take it back to. And, of course, it's the, it's the end of the Hawke-Keating government. And, and one of the great images that come out, the, one of the pol political images that you talk about is... You paint this era, the end of the Hawke-Keating era, and you, we're on election night in 1996. And there is a journalist, unnamed journalist, who is crying, mm. crying at the result. And, mm. and I think you make the point, and make the point very well, that it's not a partisan... She's not crying at a partisanship. No. She's crying because, in a way, everything she's known up to that point has suddenly changed, and the world is receding. And you make this lovely quote, when a government changes a small universe explodes. Now, why I mention that is that not a lot of people have written with such candor about that sort of relationship, that sort of symbiosis in the press gallery. And one of the things that is being disrupted is that very relationship, and you write about that. So do you think this concept of the press gallery, the symbiosis, all that, is this a good or a bad thing, or is it just the way things are? Well, uh, first of all, I recorded that moment of a colleague of mine. It sort of seems amazing to think about going out to uh, cover election nights at the National Tally Room in Canberra when literally as the votes came in, you know, people put the... It was like the scores, you know, up on the board as the votes came in. And this is only 1996 this happened, sort of pre-digital. So that was my first tally room. And one of the things when I track back in my mind to 1996 that really stuck in my head was the memory on that night of one of my colleagues crying uh, as the result came in. And why I sort of foregrounded that is it's a bit of a harbinger, I suppose, of, of uh, how, what happens to us <laughs> when the internet bus hits. It's sort of, it's, it's putting you in the moment. It's putting you in the moment of what that's, what that's like, what that's like to experience as a human being a big shift in your known universe. So it's, that's why I put it in. In terms of Pete's question, though, as for the symbiosis that he's talking about, well, the answer to the question is nothing is ever uh, the way it is forever. Or there's no uh, stone tablet that falls from the sky that says... Uh, political reporting has to occur in the way that it has in Although Australia. Although it has for many years well, for in many, that way, right? Absolutely, yeah. for many years in that way. Um, and I know there is a, a lot of criticism of uh, the political reporting by the Parliamentary Press Gallery in Canberra, and I think a lot of that criticism is fine, justified, valid. Uh, but what's not always, uh, I suppose, celebrated 
on the flip side of that, in that kind of apparatus, is that what uh, that long stint of covering politics does in Canberra is develop a cohort of specialists in uh, in reporting. And as this disruption hits, one of the one of the big thing that's breaking down in our industry is a cohort of specialists in a particular area. And I know this from personal experience. The longer you stay on the Canberra beat, the longer you do it, the longer you dig in to press gallery journalism, the less afraid you become, the less concerned you are about what politicians think of you, what even an audience thinks of you. Those things don't matter. So on the logic of that, have we got a press gallery now that's increasingly afraid? No, I don't think so. I'm just making a broader point, I think, that it's actually worth it in my view. There's some downsides associated with long stints of reporters covering the same issue and particularly with the proximity that we cover politics, although that's changing. But I think uh, it's, it's an investment not always understood outside the industry, having a group of reporters with deep specialisation standing on the front line of the area that they're reporting rather than at a distance, I think is a thing that is a feature of the pre-disruption era that is persisting in the post-disruption era, and I would defend it. I think it's actually quite important, really, right. to have people situated and habituated in the environment. Let's yep. stay with the politics for a little, just one more question. You, go, you take us in the book from that period, 96, through to now, to Trump, and a leader who, you, as you're absolutely, absolutely right in saying this, absolutely understands and exploits the digital news media cycle, which is the need for constant crisis and for incessant conflict. Yeah. And as has been noted by several people, that in a sense Trump is playing journos at their own game, right? He's become the assignment editor, as Kyle Pope from the Columbia Journalism Review puts it, he's become the assignment editor for reporters. So journos are being suckered in in this point, right? Mm-hmm. And so are you suggesting then that we are, by the very nature of, the nature of our game, as it were, we are complicit in the likes of the rise of people like Trump? Yes, Right, okay, that was a short answer, wasn't it? I like a good short answer. Well, okay, my question then is, what do we do about it? Well, there's no easy way to... If there was a simple answer, if there was a simple, easy, cut-through answer on this point, someone would have come up with it. So the fact of the matter is, it's not simple. Uh, What sort of uh, politicians like Trump are incredibly good at doing is intuiting the environment they inhabit and exploiting that environment for their own advantage. So what a politician like Trump understands at a level of intuition is that they are an important person and uh, the job of the political reporter is obviously to document and report what important figures say every day. That is a core part of the job. That's what we do as reporters. We bear witness. We show up, we bear witness, we write the first draft of history. And we amplify. And in the modern era, we amplify. (laughs) So those judgments are, though, extremely hard to make. And the judgments that you make as a reporter about when you turn the volume down, when you don't report, when you make a conscious decision not to be played, as it were. They're some of the toughest decisions that anybody working in my line of work are are currently making at a number of levels. 
Can we talk a little bit about David Leonhelm? We certainly can. Well, this recent thing last week or so with Leonhelm and Hanson Young is an example, right, yeah. of yeah. this. So the gallery loves the Biff, f- feeds off the conflict, amplifies it, and then, you know, then kind of wins by talking about the conflict. Yeah. So the gallery can't... In one way, journalists win-win, right? Well, And it's, isn't that a flaw? Isn't that why people are so cynical about what journalists do? Well, uh, but this is, this, is the point of, this is the point of the essay. This is the, the point of me popping out and grabbing you all by the lapels and saying, look at, look at what's happening in the ecosystem that you connect with as a news consumer. Look at what's happening. Be aware. Be, be aware participants in that. In terms of, you know, if you want to sort of run a cynical cycle in the news, you can have it every which way. You can have it at the, the onset of the story, as the story begins to maximise, as the story begins to taper down, then in come the think pieces about how dreadful the story is. You know, you can have it every which way if you want to be cynical about it. I think that way goes perdition in terms of news judgments. So then you've got to, you've got to be self-aware in that environment. Why I was sort of picking up on Leonhelm is that it's just a perfect case study of 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 uh, what those those conflicts and those difficulties in in this period of disruption. If we think about that story, um, you know, we it's a real thing. Obviously, Sarah Hansen Young experienced workplace harassment. That's a real thing. There's also a cultural moment associated with that. That's really fascinating and needs to. Uh, we need to bear witness to as reporters, which is this amazing uh, response that women are rising up around the world in the wake of Me Too and, dis- and determining almost as a collective that we've really had enough of the crap. Uh, that's an important cultural moment that needs to be marked and also interrogated in a reporting sense. But then uh, Leonhelm obviously used the, the degree of attention around that water cooler story in order to narrow cast to his supporters in order to send a message to his supporters. He's not interested in having a broad communication with the public at large. He's interested in having a narrow conversation with his own supporters and reinforcing their predispositions. And the disrupted news cycle enables him to do that. There are echo chambers that enable him to do that. So then you've got to determine, I think, as a reporter and as a news organisation, how long that tap stays on and when that tap gets turned off. And that's right, and that's generally the, the trickiest thing. And you talk about that a lot in the book, and there are many reasons to commend this book, and that is certainly one of them. Because, you know, if you go back to last week, and if you beamed in from outer space, you would think the most important issue in our country was this spat between mm. two senators mm. rather than, say, the national energy policy. Yes, although I was writing a lot about that I know that you too, were, Pete. and I, I was know writing you a lot were, about that. I was writing obsessively about that too. Apologies but, to everyone. But I guess it goes, goes to the bigger point, not only the kind of manipulations of the likes of Trump, but also the inherent problems of the digital universe we live in, which is that it repays conflict, it repays incessant noise, as you put it, it repays shouty, superficial, shallow, febrile. I mean, you take us to some very dark places. It's a pretty dark book. It, is, well, no, it has a happy ending, though. <laughs> it does. Uh, but it, you do take us to a lot of dark places. And I guess I got to the point where thinking, so are we, if we talk about journalism in general, but political journalism in particular, is it losing its sort of value? Well, I think we're in danger of that. Right. 
Which so, is a, that is a very grim thing to say. Well, it, it is, but it's but it's uh, but uh, please think about this in the call to arms frame. This is not me sitting in front of you with my very good friend Peter Frey surrendering before your very eyes. <laughs> this is me standing up and fighting for my profession and and what I've devoted twenty years of my life to, and what a bunch of my colleagues have also devoted a considerable period of their life to. This is not me saying. Game over, kids. Fold the tent. We're going home. This is me saying we're doubling down. We're in the fight of our lives, and we're doubling down. That's what we're doing. So, how aware are is the the news media industry aware of this, though? You think? I mean, aren't we complicit in our own downfall, in a sense, by writing shouty, febrile, shallow? Aren't we actually fulfilling our own demise? Well, what we are in danger of doing, and I think this is a very important period, this consolidation period that's occurring. Now, I think this is a very critical period at a number of levels. What we're in danger of doing uh, in this relentless chase for the new, and if you read the little book, you'll, you'll, you, I, will, uh, I will explain to you a concept of the, the currency of the print news cycle, which was the important, versus the currency of the digital news cycle, which is the new. Mm. And those two things are quantifiably different things. If we are constantly in the thrall of the new, if we are trying to win the minute-by-minute battle for the latest, you know, half-fact, insight, whatever else, we certainly run a risk, in my view, of not only burning ourselves out, uh, but also audiences out. And one of the things that most concerns me about, uh, I suppose, one of the side effects associated with this digital disruption has been this increasing increasing polarisation and increasing conflict and uh, the sort of commodity of tribalism. And I think when you throw so much information at people, and this is sort of... This is not only about journalism, this is about what technology has done to all of us. It sort of picked us all up and put us on a different plane. I think if you, want, if you bombard audiences with information and inputs constantly you get a strange, or you get a kind of natural human response to that. People start to withdraw. People start to fall back on their natural inclinations, instincts, predispositions. And then things like facts and evidence start to lose their currency. What's bound us together in the past has been a sort of mutual respect for facts and evidence... Uh, what we've seen in the technological disruption is that starting to splinter, that sort of, that's starting to break away. And I think in part it's, it's overload on the part of audiences. Uh, so I think we've got to be attentive to that. I think we've got to understand that. And I think we've not got to... We've got to find the right balance between giving people information that they need and not completely bombarding them. Like, just... For instance, like the biggest story in the world at the moment, right? Can anyone guess what the biggest story is right now? The boys. That's the biggest, you know, biggest game in town in the moment, like the biggest story in the world. I understand why people want to know what's happening now. Of course I do. And it would be ludicrous as someone who pioneered live daily coverage in politics to sit before you and say live coverage is a mistake. It's not a mistake. But... So I get why people need to know things now and the technology has taken us to that place, but I also think we need to try and consolidate and strike a balance between people needing to know everything on the spot and people being completely bombarded, overwhelmed and almost pushed back 
uh, into a place where they start to disconnect and then that becomes problematic at, you know, in a democracy, in a functional debate about politics. So let's switch to a positive here because you talk a lot in the book about the audience Mm-hmm. So in the print era, uh, you hardly, we hardly knew our audience. They were distant. A letter might arrive. Yep. Took three weeks <laughs> to get there uh, in yep. spidery letter writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some hardy souls would occasionally find your telephone number and call you. I mean, these were very distant concepts, the audience. And now, of course, they're in your face yep. all the time. Yep. So, and, and, you know, I don't think there's an option here. But so at the coalface, the audience... You want to love them, but don't you also want to hate them? <laughs> I mean, are they, how do you see it? Are they a good thing, a bad thing? Well, the, the thing about uh, the proximity of the audience, again, that's the, all, a lot of this that I'm talking about sounds like a really incremental change, but all of these things in combination with other things are a revolution in terms of who we, who we are, what we do, what our business is. The proximity of the audience is, the, is a big change in the digital era and there's sort of there's there's two ways of looking at it there's uh, there there is what news organizations know about audiences which is for the first time in our history we know more about audiences than we have ever known in the past in the print era no one would have had any idea why anyone bought the paper or whether the placement of any particular... Well, you didn't have to know, did you? Well, you didn't have to know. That's the point. You didn't have to know. Now, because of analytics, we know so much about our audiences. We know, uh, we know who they are. We know where they get out of material from. They know, we know how long they're reading it. We know how they're sharing it. We know where they've accessed it. So we know loads more about the audience, and we are attempting to serve the needs and interests of our audiences, which is very important. Uh, but also imposes a whole bunch of metrics that never existed before the digital era, and those metrics as a reporter can mess with your head if you let them. But putting that to one side, why I continue to be optimistic about digital and why digital in a funny way suits me is that I want that community with an audience. I actively seek it out because I think that's journalism that is connected to a community and has a mandate from a community is journalism that will be supported by that community. So I think it's very important. Journalism's quite a tough job and I like to know that I am not alone. So how do you say no to your audience though? Because I I get it, you know, so you've got this new relationship with and you want that audience and you want to, as it were, have a conversation and then the audience turns around to you and say, hey Murph, I, I think you're writing shit. Why don't you write what I want you to write? Because mm-hmm. I'm the member of your audience, remember? Mm-hmm. We're having this conversation and you serve me. Mm. If you like, the, it's turned the other way. Yeah. We are now very much servants of the audience. Absolutely. And, and so how do you deal with that? Because <laughs> you've got to turn around and say, hey, no, I'm a journo. The great thing about community with an audience is what I've said, community with an audience. The flip side of community with an audience is that it's fine if your audience is sort of coming on the journalism journey with you, which is, in my mind, journalism is the art of endless curiosity. That's what it's about. It's kind of about discovering this fact and the next fact and the next fact and the next fact. It's this fantastic, you know, kind of intellectual exercise if your audience is happy to go with you on that path in that sort of boundless curiosity vein, then, then all is well. If the audience thinks that you need to be having a particular view about a particular, a particular politician or a particular set of values about 
a particular issue that you're covering, then obviously there will be a collision between the practice of journalism, the art of endless curiosity, and the predispositions of an audience. You know, why are you so nasty to Bill Shorten or, you know, why are you a dreadful, you know, a Turnbull heckler or whatever I get routinely accused of, which is all of those things and often on the same day. Um, which is a good thing. Which is, well, yeah. it, which is a good thing. So, it, again, it's a balance. And this is, this is the sort of job of the next 10 years of this consolidation is, is mm. Mm. working out where we've landed and redrawing some of these lines. Well, one of the concepts that, that, you know, that seems to be redundant now is this idea of the journalist as the voice of God, you know, this kind of Morgan Freeman-type mm. character that, that offers pronouncements, knows, got the inside track, knows everything, trust me, I'm the voice of God. Yeah. And the other is this other con- very contested issue in modern journalism, which is objectivity. And to summarise, I think you basically want to get rid of the voice of God, uh-huh. but I you want to hang on God. to objectivity. Sort of. Why is that? I hate the voice of God. I always hated the voice of God. If you don't know what the... I think Pete's described it very adequately here, but it's a real artefact of the print era where these sort of benevolent, omniscient narrators, journalists would, in their wisdom, hand down their insights every day on the news pages or the opinion pages, and it was on a send-not-receive basis. You know, here I am informing you, aren't I marvellous? It was always a conceit. It was always bogus... Um, and it took the digital era to call it out, and uh, I, I, I celebrate its departure. I think it's just nonsense. So okay. hurrah for that. Hurrah for that. In terms of objectivity, um, there's a little bit of an inflection point on the objectivity. Um, I am very much of the view, going back to what I said a moment ago about journalism being the endless curiosity, the art of endless curiosity. So... I think good journalists follow facts and evidence to particular conclusions. All of us have predispositions, all of us have values, all of us have worldviews. That's fine. I don't think everybody should feel the same way. In fact, I hope that everybody feels differently. Makes the world more interesting. But at the end of the day, journalism is about following facts, establishing facts, following evidence to particular conclusions. Um, Academics like Jay Rosen, who's an academic I quite admire, um, has a sort of more shaded view of this, thinks that basically all journalists are subjective, all of us have values... We should just basically tell well, we, the audience. We do all have values. Well, of course. No, 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 no. I'm not no. for one minute. No, I know you're not. But I'm not for one minute denying that we do. Yeah. But Rosen's view is you just basically tell the audience up front. Okay, look, here, I'm a you know I'm a progressive, middle-aged woman from blah. Uh, that's how I see the world, and get about informing the world through the prism of your own values. Well. Uh. Well, uh, well, Rosen's point on that is that it's more honest to do that. Well, it's more, it's more honest, but with due respect to Rosen, it's also more lazy. I think the art, the art of journalism remains follow the facts, and that sometimes that, that's a discipline that, get in, that gets imposed. That means you actually have to put down your own predispositions. You put down your worldview. You put it down. It's not relevant. It doesn't help anyone to be in front of them with your worldview. And, in fact, your worldview can be an inhibition between you and the truth. So put it down. Look at what the truth is. Try and follow the truth to the evidence. 
That's, that's the art of journalism. And I think if we give that up, if we give that game away and we just say we're like sports commentators or, I don't know, whomever, and I'm not, sorry, obviously meaning to cast dispersions on sports commentators who are wonderful people, but we're not sport commentators. It's not what we do. It's not the job. The job is get to the evidence and often the biggest barrier between you and the evidence is you. So get out of the way. Yeah, well, so, but in many ways, things like live blogging is sport commentating. Live blogging parliament is nothing really, is the clear analogy is it's, it's sport well, it commentating did, it, on sport. No, That's exactly what it is. Oh, Pete, heavens. Look, it... It, it, it is. No, it depends. It can be. It can be. I don't know... I'm not really a sport person, so, I mean, I don't know. Maybe mine well, was I'm like AFL saying, commentary. Describing, but... as we've talked about, describing the blow-by-blow of an issue is, in essence, just describing the blow-by-blow of a 90-minute game of rugby league. But that's not what... Well, it's certainly not what I... It was not my objective on my live blog. I know. It was not... I was, my objective was not description, although description has to happen because people have to know what's going on. My objective in my live blog was what does this mean? Does this matter? Is this important? Is this a bunch of nonsense? Yeah. And given live exists, you're, you make a decision whether or not you're going to populate it and try and do it uh, so that you attempt. I'm not saying that you achieve Ooh. this objective on any given day, but that you add some value. Sure. That's the point. Okay. Not, not the sports commentary. One other thing, because I want to end on a slightly positive note. You, talked, you talk in the book about building campfires, which is this communication, this conversation with the community, yeah. and then you, you sort of extend that by talking about the role of the journalists in the digital age as being a kind of a river guide in white water. So is that, is that the point we should grab onto and be optimistic about the future of journalism? Well, I, I believe with every fibre of my being that there is still a job there to do. And I believe that, uh, that that job done at its best helps to make the country a better place. So I don't... You know, I'm, I'm a sort of funny... Um, I've got a funny relationship with the digital disruption. I'm not a Luddite. I don't want to go and smash my computer and throw my phone out the window and retreat back to the orderly time of newspapers. Like I, was, I was saying to Pete earlier today, I'm kind of so far removed from newspapers I can barely even remember that environment anymore. It's not that I want to transform the environment or make the environment different or track us back to a more orderly place, because even if I wanted to do that, I couldn't do that. What I'm trying to achieve with this conversation is to make us self-aware in the environment that we live in, both journalists and news consumers. So, and that's, that's the battle, I think, that's really important to win. Well, just on that point, what do people who are in this room who are not journalists need to do? Be aware. Is that all? Does it um, give you 50 bucks or something? Well, <laughs> well you, you've, you've stolen my talking oh, yeah. point. No, 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 no. Be aware. First and foremost, be aware. Understand that, uh, that what's going on is, is literally picking society up and moving it into a different place and putting it down. Oh. That's, that's what we're living through. Uh, be, un- be aware that this unmooring, which is which is a direct result of technological disruption, is having all kinds of consequential impacts and be an aware and engaged citizen in the middle of that. And in terms of journalism, well, yes, I will ask you to support journalism. 
if you still believe in it, if you think that there is a public good associated with it, because the, techni the technological disruption has killed everybody's business models. Mm. Advertising has gone. All that rivers of gold that, that basically sustained journalism throughout its industrial period, that is gone. That's over. It's never coming back. If you want journalism to survive and thrive and get through this transition, you do need to support it. I'll give you one practical example, one example that people outside journalism never think about because we don't really talk about it. But, for example, everybody, I'm sure, in this room would value investigative journalism. It's the best of what we do. It's the stuff that exposes corruption or, uh, you know brings people down that shouldn't be holding positions that they're in. It changes society for the better. It's the most important journalism that we do. If news organisations are not able to sustain themselves at a scale where they can defend defamation proceedings, which inevitably extends from investigative journalism, if journalism shrinks to a point where it cannot defend its journalists and its journalism, then investigative journalism will not happen. There's no magic bullet that's going to turn up. There's no magic train full of money that's going to fall out of the sky that's going to fix this. What's happening right now is news organisations are struggling with sustainability. We are all experimenting in front of you about how we're going to fund journalism into the future. If you value it, pay for it. Yep, just a few brief comments. Um, so thank you, Peter, and thank you, Catherine. I think uh, what Catherine said, pay for the journalism. You know, so subscribe to news organisations, subscribe to The Guardian. You can donate to The Guardian as well. Pay attention to what's happening in the media. Obviously, the Walkleys are working to try and sustain and, and support journalism, as is the Centre of Media Transitions. So um, it's now more than ever with Trump and all the things we've heard, the disruption, a very important time to support Australian journalism. So... Thank you for coming tonight. You are demonstrating your support and keep up the great work. And thank you to Peter for a wonderful moderation and to Catherine for her book, Pay for Her Book. It's an amazing read. She will sign it for you. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. Sign up for our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe and you'll be the first to learn about new episodes as well as our events and other opportunities. Find us on iTunes or your favourite podcast app and please rate us there. This podcast is produced by Miles Holbrook-Walk and with help from the 2SER studios in Sydney, Australia. Till next time.